my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical billing expert, finding savings can seem impossible. HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance and flags errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. Saving starts with knowing where to look. Visit HealthLock.com today before you see another healthcare provider. All right, David Cervantes, the founder of Pinebrook Capital. Um, thanks so much for joining me today. I've been watching your um, content uh, for six months or so, let's say. And uh, boy, I was just amazed how you stood in the face of almost everybody with a contrarian take. And it turned out to be right. And you sort of had this unorthodox uh, way that you look at the markets. Uh, so anyway, I appreciate you taking the time to, to come on and, and speak to me today. Thanks for um, having me. Happy to be here. So, um, David, uh, the first thing I guess we'll just dump right into, I want to talk about, you know, what you're looking at, um, indicators, uh, levels, charts, things like that, your unorthodox approach to the markets, uh, why you're sort of this contrarian and you seem very confident in your opinions. I like that. Um, and then we're going to talk about it in light, uh, kind of what you think and what you're watching for 2024. Um, and then uh, kind of specifically when we look at, you know, huge debt that we're having, deficit spending uh, to in an election year, which I think is something to be paying attention to, and then uh, in light of war. So those are the topics we're going to discuss and dive into. Um, before we do that, let's just maybe start at the top. And um, one of the questions that I've, I've been asking is, uh, Mark Twain said, it's not the things that we know for certain, or it's not the things that we don't know that get us in trouble. It's the things that we know absolutely for certain. And what I saw for the last year and a half or two years was everybody saying, as soon as the Fed raises the risk-free rate, stocks have to reprice lower. They have to, they have to, they have to. They also said when mortgage rates go from two and a half to 8%, home prices have to, have to, have to. Well, neither of those things happened. They didn't have to, obviously, right? So I don't know. Do you want to start and tell me why they didn't crash? Sure. So I, I think we, you know, these things, we take things that have historically happened and project them into the future without really understanding why. So a good example 
that you just mentioned was the housing market, right? Everyone said, you know, your mortgage rates went up, um, home price, home uh, sales, especially for the existing home sales, pretty much froze in their tracks. Nothing happened. People stopped buying houses. Um, there was um, new home sales were somewhat okay because of the, um, you know, the, the rate buy downs that some of the bigger builders were able to offer. But for the most part, you know, the, the, the housing market didn't tank the economy. And what's curious is that in seven out of the most uh, 11, seven out of 11 post-war recessions have originated in the housing market. So it's the most cyclically sensitive and volatile part of the economy. And that's always, that's typically been ground zero for um, um, a, a recession. But the, the question, the reason, I'm sorry, the, 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 no one really bothered to ask why. And, and the why really matters. What matters is housing, employment, and unit construction. And with the pandemic, um, cons unit construction kept on going. Um, housing employment, we didn't, we didn't get an extinction event, an employment extinction event that would take down, you know, translate and take down the rest of the economy. So while everyone's scratching their heads about you know, oh my God, sales have dried up, mortgage rates are high, and it's, it's the end of the world. Um, the, the real economy, what matters for GDP accounting, kept on keeping on. It did fine. And in November of 2022, recognizing that, I pivoted and said, look, without these, without this, what really matters turning over, what doesn't matter is not going to have an impact. What doesn't matter is sales. Sales does nothing for the real economy. Housing, employment, and unit construction, spending, that does a lot for the real economy and that never turned over. So I think, you know, what's the, the takeaway is you got to get into the nuts and bolts of causality, empirical causality, following the chain of events into what may or may not happen. And that's, that's a great example right there. So um, the, we saw that evidence like in the home builder stocks uh, stayed up pretty strong. Um, and the construction industry overall, I guess you're saying, remains strong. So even though the sales of units went down, the industry itself, is that what you're saying? The industry itself That's right. stayed strong? That's right. And, and there's, a lot, there's a lot of, and then you, you peel back the onion and go a little deeper. There's a lot of reasons why that's the case. You know, one of the reasons is um, employment, housing, construction, employment is at secular lows. And in other words, there's just not enough bodies out there with hammers. So effectively, there's no one left to fire. You know, all the, there's a shortage of construction workers and you can you know pull your hair out as to why that may be the case but it's just it is the case we're at secular lows in uh housing employment uh trends so you know without anyone to fire you're not going to get that employment extinction event and the other thing that does is it takes it, it stretches lead times for construction projects in other words what i i, I can't recall the numbers offhand but typically it takes a certain amount of time to build a house well over the past two decades the, those lead times have increased, right? Because there's not enough people to build them. So the things that the things within housing that typically took down or spread to the rest of the economy just weren't present to to have that effect. Mm, yeah, good point. Uh, 2008. Uh, my my story is I got taken down in 2008 here in Southern California, sort of ground zero in my area here in Southern California. We saw prices drop 60 percent. Orange County, California, I was sort of the epicenter of the mortgage boom, if you will. Almost everybody, uh, everybody I knew was in the mortgage industry, and it was hit extremely hard. Um, and yeah, today we don't see any of that. And uh, my friends that are still in the housing and construction industry, I mean, they're still not able to find workers to your point they can't keep somebody there no matter what they do 
you know, another thing too, there's been a, there's been a huge consolidation in the market. You know, I, I forgot what the exact number is, but you know, the big um, the big home builders control around eighty percent of new construction. So what does that mean? It means they have access to capital markets. It means they have um, a lot more buying power. So the the industry itself has changed. You know, before the old you know the old um, you know the 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 model of a builder and his friends you know turning turning over two or three houses a year that is kind of a, a, a dying a dying part of the business model now it's consolidated these players are bigger they're more agile they were able to do things like the rate buy downs that we saw that that wouldn't have happened 10 years ago mm. that's a big piece and that's sort of my thesis is the way that the central banks interact in the markets today has changed it really changed in 2008 it's escalated and it's a lot different today and and you're saying even the uh sort of similar the way that the big home builders uh interact in the markets has changed which obviously makes them be able to sort of handle these situations a little bit differently and there's also that's a segue you just you know segues into another thing too the bank regulations after 2008 you know the, the, the regulatory bodies had a never again moment we're never gonna let this happen again we're never gonna let the economy get over its skis over leverage and and take down the, the entire economy and it was an ex existential moment for the economy and the, the banks have been neutered um so even if you you know the, the wildcatter days are kind of over so that's another element where you know the the leverage appetite for risk isn't there um, or it, maybe it's there, but it's been neutered by regulatory reforms. So mm -hmm. that was another element where the industry didn't have that overbuilding that it was, you know, uh, more familiar with prior cycles. And a lot of it is sort of the generals fighting the last war, so to speak. And so I think you said seven of the last 11 turndowns were driven by uh, mortgage. Obviously, 2008, still PTSD on everybody's yeah. mind from that. And so, right. you know, everyone's fighting that last war, so to speak, thinking that's going to lead the market. But that's not necessarily the case. That's right. And, and with fighting the last war, then you end up with perverse outcomes. Now we have the opposite problem we had in 2008. Instead of overbuilding, now we have a nationwide secular housing shortage. So, right. um, you know, we fought the last war and now we're creating new problems for ourselves. Yeah. Now let's jump into the market. So then, or I don't know, we want to talk markets or economy, uh, but you know, there's no shortage. I don't want to call him out by name. Uh, we'll call it Harry Dent Jr. Uh, every year he's calling for a 90% crash. Um, his data is great. I mean, I've read five of his books. I think his data is right. His assumptions on the data have obviously proven to be wrong. Um, a 90% crash. Um, in June and then in July and then November, and you were kind of standing firm and saying, no, it's not going to, it's not going to, it's not going to. Um, why is that? What were you looking at that was sort of giving you that different picture? Well, uh, first of all, the housing market was, was central to that thesis. Um, and second of all, you know, I was looking at the bond market. Um, you know, if you look at bond market, um, you know, break-evens and five-year, five-year forward expectations, they never really unanchored. The, 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 the bond market kind of said, was able to see through the inflation. So as long as the bond market, you know, had its, retained its confidence in Fred and Fed credibility to bring down the inflation, and as long as the bond market more or less agreed that, you know, this was a supply chain driven shock, um, that the, the bond market was not going to fall apart, and the, con the 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 inflation would eventually turn into disinflation, and that's exactly what happened. We started seeing um, disinflation really kick in June of 2023, and it, got, it got, went to high gear in uh, Q4 of this year. So the, the, what, what was different? It was the bond market. The bond market never really freaked out. I mean, there were some spasms and we, you know, some term premiums blew out. I'm sorry, contracted. Um, 
and you know there was some dysfunction we saw a few di- you know we saw some dysfunction sure starting with starting with the ba- starting with the banks in in march of uh, 2023 sure um right. there was the mini banking crisis and a pretty favorable robust policy response but you know growth the, the growth it, it didn't really affect the growth impulse in fact we had some stunning growth you know uh, people were calling for a recession in 23 uh, everyone was sure about it and back in 2000 i'm sorry back in february of 23 I, this is on Twitter. I came out and said, "Look, as long as things get less bad, the economy is going to be doing fine." Because despite all the muck that was thrown at the economy, we were still at you know very very low, but still positive growth. And all these headwinds were basically dead weight. And the economy proved to be resilient. And there's many reasons for that. There's you know all the stimulus spending, um, but. You know, supply chains started coming back online. Stimulus spending got us through, you know, the quote unquote the dark times. And I called out a, a growth impulse uh, back in uh, February of 23. And lo and behold, um, uh, Q2 came in at a, a high two handle. Q3 was on fire. It came in at, I believe, 5.2%. Um, so um, I think listening to the bond market, paying attention to what really matters and what doesn't matter is kind of key to my process. Now, uh, the, the, the market responded, the economy, we're talking about the economy specifically here, coming back with strong growth. Um, but what about the consumer that is uh, savings are dwindling and uh, consumer debt is skyrocketing? Um, cost of living is going up. Uh, standard of living is going down at the same time. I mean, h- how do you look at that? Um, these are all valid points. Um, and there's, you know, there's pockets of you know, strengths and there's pockets of weakness. But for the purposes of the overall macro economy, and for purpose of markets, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. I mean, I remember last year too. There was I'll talk about the um, um, this you know student loans uh, after I guess there was some forbearance, and once that forbearance uh, expired, then there was going to be a kind of this huge wall of debt uh, coming. It's going to hit consumers, and it didn't matter. And the way I, the way I approach all these questions is take whatever doom story you're thinking about it, divide it by the nom- the size of the nominal of nominal GDP. It's about $28 trillion. And you typically get a really, really, really small number with a lot of decimal, far, you know, far right to the, to, um, a lot of zeros to the right of the decimal point. So I think when you contextualize things like this, it really, it doesn't matter. This is a massive, massive economy. It's not gonna be taken down by, you know, um, a, a, a relatively small thing. I mean, these things obviously affect people's lives, affect people's standards, individual standard of living. But for purposes of the macro economy, which is my, my area of focus, it doesn't matter. That's a really good point. So um, within the economy, there are certainly groups of people that are being affected. Um, so if you want to dive into it, you can see that certainly some people are dealing with the volatility and a lot of people are being affected. But when you look at the whole, then uh, it's more bullish. So it kind of depends on where you're at. But as a whole, it's good. Is that what you're saying? Correct. I mean, as, as a whole, we, we've created two, over 2.5 million jobs in the past few years. I mean, that's bonkers. That is crazy. I mean, you, and you can say it's because of stimulus. Fine. It's fake. Fine. You say whatever you want, but the number's the number. And that's what you got to pay attention to. Mm. Even though a lot of those are two jobs, the second jobs? Look, that's, that, 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 those individual hardships are, are kind of a policy question. But for people in the markets that want to make money, that's what they need to focus on. Good. Okay. Um, now, do you think? And, and also- I'm sorry. I'm sorry if that sounds harsh. I mean, I'm. 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 I'm you know, I, I didn't grow up rich. I, I went to public schools all my life. I, I know. 
I, I know, I know, I, you know, I've, I've experienced different, uh, um, I've had many different experiences in my life. I'm not trying to be callous to the human element of it. I'm just saying for purposes of markets, yeah, that should be the focus. Yeah. And, and I, I want to just speak into that, uh, human element of it just for a second. I mean, if you're one of these people that might have not liked what David just said and Hey, that doesn't help me, you know, I'm affected by that. Um, the hope is that, well, lots of the market and economy is still doing very well and you're not a tree, you can move. And so you could learn a new skill. You can move into a part of the market that is um, in demand that is growing. And so while whatever corner of the market or economy you may be in that that's affected, um, there's lots of other corners and areas in the economy and market that are doing well. Well, we, and we see it in, you know, one really, one of the best things about this labor market recovery is that we've seen uh, labor market dynamics that we haven't seen in generations. African-American employment is at levels that we haven't seen in 50 years. Uh, people that are at the margins of the labor force, people with, you know, mild disabilities that maybe were not deemed to be socially appropriate for a, a job environment. Now, suddenly they, they have access to jobs. People with uh, petty criminal records that were, you know, because maybe they smoked a joint in high school or in college and got nailed for it or, or got a DUI when they were 18, but now they're 35 and they're trying to support a family. You know, they were hard to employ because they had a felony record. Now that stuff's being looked over. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, the human element, I, I think, you know, a rising tide does lift all boats eventually. Maybe, you know, again, not at the same rate, not everybody benefits at the same time, but this economy, this recovery has helped a lot of people that were previously on the, the margins of the labor force. Mm. Now, um, in your uh, in your work at Pinebrook Cap, uh, it's a Substack. We'll, we'll link to it down below. Um, I follow it. Um, like I said, you kind of stood in the face of uh, the general consensus, if you will, sort of as this contrarian, the market's not going to crash. Um, you started to, I think, it seems like maybe you're starting to change your view a little bit. Um, you kind of been reporting that maybe the Fed's job of cooling inflation has maybe gotten in front of them. And so maybe uh, they wanted to cool it. Maybe it's cooling too fast, which is part of why I think you were calling for the pivot, you know, coming a little bit sooner. Um, and now it looks like some of the data that you're looking at might be saying that maybe they've gone too far too fast and this disinflation might be catching them off guard. I, I don't know if I'm summarizing that right. No, I think that's right. I, I think, you know, if we go back to the premise that a lot of the, you know, look, there was the inflation is, is a very complex subject. You know, to this day, we still don't have a true working theory of inflation. And that's, you know, that's everyone knows this. Everyone at the Fed knows this. You know, it's it's not like, you know, it's not like a, a machine that we can to totally understand. We have ideas, we have approximations, but no one really has a, a real working theory of, of inflation. Uh, so we're kind of making. Uh, it I, 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 I buy into the Austrian school of economics uh, theory of uh, inflation being a monetary phenomenon. Uh, but but anyway, uh, go um, ahead. So, 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 yeah. So, so now that we've kind of realized that, look, you know, roughly about 80 percent of the inflation that we saw was supply chain driven. Um, maybe we over maybe they, they were overhyped, you know, and, and the Fed kind of put themselves in this position, right, because they relate to the trade. And, you know, when they call it transitory and it wasn't transitory, they had egg on their face. So now they had like this oh crap moment of, oh, my God, we're behind the curve and we better get after it. And we see that with, you know, they started with 25 basis point hikes, 25, then they went to 50 and then they're like, we need to do 75. And they went guns a blazing. So I think by the time they're at, at a point where they were hitting, they were, you know, making 75 basis point uh, increases. By then, you know, if you subscribe to the idea of you know, long and variable lags, 
I kind of do kind of, I have to, half don't, but, um, by, by the time they were doing 75, you know, they, they were, they they were just getting, getting too aggressive at that point. Um, I, I mentioned earlier in the show that disinflation really started in June of 23. Well, guess what? We got a 75 basis point hike in July. So right there, you have this wedge, this asymmetry of the disinflation has already started, but we're still hiking. And that's only, you know, seven months ago. Yeah. So um, the, the idea that we went may, may have gone too far. Obviously, we will only know that in hindsight, but we're getting clues that that has been the case, right? Where now uh, we're undershooting the Fed's target. Um, for 2023, the Fed had a target of three, uh, core PC of 3.7 we're undershooting, we undershot that. So by definition, if you've undershot it, that means you applied the brakes too hard. Think of a moving car, you got, you're approaching a stoplight, you want, you want to nail the stop more or less appropriately, but if you had to shoot the stoplight by, by 100 meters, you've either put the brakes on too long, too hard, or both. And that's effectively what happened in 23. In 23. We see it already, and we're seeing it more as, um, as the data comes in. So the way it's looking now, the PE, the, the uh, summary of economic projections, the Fed is looking at a PCE of 2.4 for 20, for the end of 24. We're probably going to hit that mid-June. And that's why, you know, the, the fixed income market, the short end of the curve is, is being so aggressively bid because the market is seeing that, holy crap, we're going to undershoot the red light. We're not, we're going to, we're, we're not going to hit, stop, you know, three feet before the red light. We're going to stop a thousand feet before the red light. Yeah. So, um, one of the big, maybe the big drivers of this to me seems to just be looking at sort of the natural constraints that are there, the amount of, uh, government debt that we have, and not just really the debt, but really the deficit, um, and the continuing uh, adding of the debt that's, that's going there. I mean, we're having, you know, the largest deficit spending that we've seen in any war, you know, even even higher than COVID, the spending never sort of came down. That deficit spending seems to be um, in an area what we'll call fiscal dominance. I mean, pushing the markets, if you will. Um, and sort of there's this uh, proverbial rock in a hard place where they're fighting inflation, but at the same time, they don't want this disinflation or deflation um, that we're seeing there. Um, how do you see them navigating this in light of being an election year? Uh, I think maybe one president, uh, incumbent president during election year and a recession has ever won re-election. And so you would think if there's anything the Democratic Party could do to stay in power and keep the re economy going, they would do that. So how do you think they manage this election and this debt deficit spending um, and, and sort of what is this tug of war that we see in the economy and the markets this year? Honestly, for now, they don't care. Uh, I think this morning I just heard that. Uh, they don't care what, about inflation or? About about the deficit at this point. The deficit is an, yeah. in an election year. It's a not. It's a non. For us, it might be an issue, but I think for policymakers, for people, you know, making the rules, it's not really a consideration. Why? Um, they want to get elected. Both parties want to get elected, right? So they're gonna they're gonna spend, and they're spending. Uh, we, this morning, I just I think uh, I read a, a blurb of that um, some R and D and some business property uh, expenses are gonna be uh, be allowed for. Um, you know, instant depreciation, uh, expanding the child tax credit. Again, we can argue to it, we're blue in the face whether that's good or bad, but the fact is they're doing it. And that's what matters for markets. Um, so I think with that kind of spending, you know, it's going to be hard to get a recession this year when the, the government can, you know, the 2024 is going to, the budget's looking bigger than 2023. 
Yeah. I, I love I love your viewpoint on this and, and something I say quite often, which is we have to take the market as it is, not as we want it to be or we think it should be, but as it is. And so you're like, wait, we can argue these whether these are good or bad policies and that's fine. But like the data is the data. Right. Right. I mean, these are these are, you know, ultimately they're philosophical questions, but they're they're electoral questions. They're questions of national priorities, what's important and what's not. And we should have this debate. But as it affect, uh, as it matters to markets, I think I think that's the if you start projecting politics on the market, you're, you're just going to get wrecked, I think. Uh, except for, I mean, you do sort of want to think about the politics and what they may do. I mean, if you're trying to sort of uh, guess into the future, right? So it's like, hey, the politics is they want to get it elected. So they're going to continue to do deficit spending. And so we kind of have to anticipate that uh, versus going, well, no, they're going to run on a on a ballot of austerity and they're going to cut the spending, yeah. right? So you do kind of have sure. to get into the politics. A no, I, I think that's right. Because we saw with, you know, a lot of the IRA spending, the, when the ironically, they call it the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah. But that <laughs> targeted a lot of, you know, a lot of of spending so you know if you're if you're a market participant you want to get in front of that and find out where's that where's that money follow the money as they say right where's that you know this is this is trillions and trillions of dollars um going into different sectors of the economy and if you can get in front of that sure there's a buck to be made yeah so uh in an election year both parties want to get elected and they don't really care about the deficit anymore it almost seems like i mean at this point the deficit and the debt are just so big that like everybody just doesn't even care about it I mean, it just seems like we're at that pace at, at that point anymore. Um, it's such a big number, like 34 trillion. Now we've surpassed, like we're never going to pay that back. Oh, well, I guess we'll just kind of forget about it. And what does it even mean at this point? Well, I mean, let's look at history. We you know we, we had look at World War Two as as uh, as a precedent where we had massive uh, debt. I think I think nationwide, you know, economy wide, meaning private debt as well as public debt. You know, we were at over 200 percent GDP. Um, and and we managed to work our way through that uh, to much lower levels by the by the 60s and 70s. And debt really didn't start picking up again until the 80s. But my, my point is, governments have a unique ability, especially a, a government that is the issuer of the global reserve currency. They've got a lot more runaway than, than we think. They're not like a household. The, the rules that apply to me and you do not apply to governments. Why? You and I have a natural lifespan. We will die. We need to satisfy our obligations before we die. Governments, unless they're defeated in a war and taken over, they live in perpetuity. So they can ride out, they can basically deflate and ride out, um, you know, debt. Right. In other words, when the country was newly formed and eats any, you know, a ten million dollar bond issuance was massive back then. Now, I mean, it's it's a drop in the bucket. So and these numbers kind of deflate over time. So. Um, Governments have a unique ability, especially again. We, we print our own our own currency. We we can write out these bumps, and not only that, you know, because we're the world's largest reserve, we're the reserve the reserve currency of the world. You know, money pours in here. Why? Because we have the biggest, deepest, liquid, most liquid capital markets in the world. Every country, you know, we we run current account deficits. We 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 buy more than we sell, but you know, we seem to be. Um, able to uh, give foreign investors a good return on their capital, and you know that that party can go on as long as we give foreign investors a good return on their capital. And you see it with stock markets where, you know, EM valuations, European valuations, they're at a discount compared to the U.S. Why? Because we just have better companies, better institutions, and better returns. 
Although we have seen the last couple of treasury auctions have some pretty big tails and um, some dysfunction there. And it looks like when I've looked at the data, like the foreign demand is still there. It's just the treasury is just issuing more supply than there is demand for that. So at, at some point, there is some sort of a limit there, obviously, until you can start, you know, forced to buy, buy it yourself, I suppose. I mean, don't, don't you take that into consideration? Uh Absolutely, but it's not. It probably won't happen in our lifetime. It's just the the number, the capacity for debt is staggering. Like, think about it. We are at. I think you mentioned. And you're right. I think you're around around 32 uh, trillion dollars in uh, federal debt. So that's a little more over 100 percent. You know, if we can get, you know, during World War II, we managed over, you know, mag, orders of magnitude above that. So that's a as, as a percentage. As a percentage. Correct. Yeah. That is a staggering amount of money for for the government to spend that um, maybe they can spend that in our lifetime, but it's it's a huge runaway that I think most people find hard to fathom. I mean, I, I find it hard to fathom, and this is kind of what I look at a lot. Yeah. Um, okay. now, will there be a day, day of reckoning? You know, there always is, but it's just a question is, will I be around to see it? Um, yeah. highly enlightening in my life. Well, it's the law of, I, I, the way that I see it is sort of the law of diminishing returns. And, you know, you have this Keynesian multiplier, if you will, so they're using debt to get growth. Uh, but eventually you don't get enough growth for the debt that you're consuming. And then eventually you're getting more debt. The hole's getting digger, uh, deeper, right? So you're getting more debt than you're getting growth. And then sort of that collapses. I mean, it, it happens to all nations, right? We've yep. seen it, no, we I, see it I, happening I all around I, the world. Uh, I, I, but, I agree 100%. I think that the Trump card that this, car, that this country holds, though, and that we're not leveraging is immigration. P people still want to come to this country. And if you look at every developed nation and even underdeveloped or developing nation, they have really bad demographics. Um, you know, um, if you look yeah. at you know, Japan, you know, they're just, they're, they're, you know, China, they're gonna be below replacement uh, rates at some point. Yeah. People still wanna come here. People will still die to get here. And I think if we can, you know, GDP is basically two things. It's population growth and productivity growth. So, you know, all we need to do is, you know, hand out some green cards. And, I, and this may not be politically, uh, uh, you know, appealing to a lot of people, but from an economic standpoint, the GDP, calculation is very simple it's people and productivity so yeah. if, you, if you grow your people you're going to grow your you grow your economy and you grow your way out of debt if you add yeah. productivity to that things like ai or whatever I mean, i'm not sure how much of an impact it's going to have there's a lot of hype i'm sure but there's a lot of you know productivity that if you ex exploit that then it's like a superpower and i think I, I'm, I'm i'm very bullish long term in this for this country Okay, so um, the massive amounts of debt, they're not worried about that right now. In an election year, the goal is to continue to keep a recession at bay, and uh, your sort of outlook is they'll probably be pretty successful with doing that. I think so. I mean, the way I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a small time investor, so you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm the, I'm the pimple on the elephant's butt. The elephant being uh, the Fed and policymakers, and they will make the rules. My best bet is not to fight them; it's to. Yeah find out where it's going and just you know, enjoy the party. Yeah. Now, what about uh, there's any number of black swans or gray swans, because we know about them that we could we could discuss. Um, but what about the war um, and the risks of, of the wars and escalating wars, things like that? So right now uh, we're seeing, you know, the attacks happening in the Suez Canal. Uh, we see uh, car transit cargo going through is down almost 40 percent in just the last couple of weeks. Ships are having to be rerouted. You know, yada, 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 we can go on at, uh, less trips, more costs, higher inflation, um, et cetera. And this is just a small piece. I mean, if it continues to escalate, uh, 
what does that do to oil, to um, you know, supply chains just in general? And we don't need to get into the details of each one of those, but I mean, is that a potential wrench that could be thrown to the spokes of sort of the economy and this inflation dynamic this year? Yeah, I mean, if, if we have a serious supply chain interruption, we could, you know, go back to 2020, 2021. It, it depends on the severity of it and, and the escalation. So I, I think it's in everyone's interest to de-escalate. But there's no doubt, you know, look, you know, um, you know, what happened with Russia and Ukraine, you know, it, it was kind of, you know, back then everyone's like, oh, it'll get resolved and really quick. And all of a sudden it turned into this massive supply chain shock, you know, everything from energy to in Europe, uh, fertilizer, food. Um, you know, so these things can have huge ramifications and, and I think we need to pay attention to these things. Now, um, I think it's in everyone's interest to de-escalate. Um, hopefully they're successful at it. Um, war is never in anyone's interest, but unfortunately it happens. Now, uh, I mean, that, that's a pretty good sort of proxy to look at, sort of the Russia-Ukraine situation. So when that happened, um, it didn't crash the markets. We did see supply chain shocks. We did see the price of gold and oil go through the roof. So it sort of drove asset prices higher, uh, commodity prices higher, um, and even the cost of goods higher because of the supply chain. So that was sort of an inflationary impulse that happened. It was not a deflationary impulse. So is that sort of what you think may happen? If if this were to escalate and get worse, it'd probably be more of an inflationary impulse to the economy than a deflationary one? I think so, because, you know, you have, you have oil in there. I mean, oil is oil is really, you know, there's some people, some people have a theory, and I'm sympathetic to it, that inflation really is an oil phenomena and energy or energy rather and energy really is at, at the heart of of inflation some people think of that um i know you're an austrian um that's fine i respect that um but you know if, in any case I, I think there's no question that the the you know an energy shock would be you know it could be a, it could be a disaster for the economy it could be really bad and that's what's kind of like the, the the one thing we really want to avoid that's that's the that's we, we don't want to go there. Yeah. Do you do you I, I don't know. I haven't seen you talk a lot about oil and energy in your research, so I'm not sure how versed you are. But it is seem seemingly sort of a little bit interesting right now uh, seeing this uh, traffic, the, the, whatever's happening in the Middle East, whatever you want to call it. I don't know if it's officially declared as a war or whatever, but whatever's going on in there, plus with the shipping delays through the Suez Canal, et cetera. Um, and we're seeing the price of oil still continuing to fall, which is pretty interesting. You, you would think just from that alone, it would be pushing the price up. Um, I don't know if you have an opinion on that. And do you think it's potentially, you know, the economy, the global economy is slowing enough to sort of offset that supply demand um, imbalance that's being pushed there? I, I think that's one thing is, that's really interesting is that the United States is now the largest largest oil supplier uh, producer in the world. That is crazy. I mean, we right. don't think about that. That you know, all we think about is Saudi Arabia and the, and the Middle East. But now, we we are the world's biggest oil producer. That is bonkers. And I think that's being that's I think that's the offset to what's happening in the Middle East. Hmm. So um, that is sort of sort of kind of keeping the price down, even though there are some supply chain shortages happening over in the Middle East. The U.S. is sort of picking up the slack in that. Sure. Yeah, we're able to do that. Um, we know one other area of concern, though, a possible black swan that not a lot of people are talking about is Panama Canal. So there's a drought in Panama. Yeah. Uh, the for to operate the canal locks, uh, they have to pump in water from a nearby lake. That lake is you know, pretty getting pretty bone dry. And now they're starting to put limits on uh, traffic going through the Panama Canal. So, you know, 
I don't know the, to the extent or the impact, but um, I think that's something to keep an eye on. If, if someone is really concerned, if one is really concerned about possible future supply chain shocks, have a look at the Panama Canal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, then you would have to basically reroute ships around uh, Cape Horn as opposed to Cape Good Hope and add delays, add costs, add things like that. That's right. So, um, That's right. What about um, all the what about all the people pointing to the yield curve inversion and 100 percent accuracy and pointing to a recession and it's going to be uninverting and it's guaranteed doom and gloom because 100 percent as that uninverts, there's a massive recession coming. Yeah, so the, the, the yield curves, I think, is important, but I think what people conflate is uh, they conflate it for being a uh, coincident indicator and having predictive power. What the yield curve tells us, the yield curve inversion tells us is inflation is higher today than it will be tomorrow. And therefore, uh, short rates are higher today than they will be tomorrow. That's all, that's all, that's what it's telling us today. It, it, it can't, it doesn't tell us that a recession is coming. It's, it's been coincident. It's kind of, it happens as a part of that, but it's not, it doesn't cause the recession itself. How do we know this? Well, this this is the exception. This this cycle, right? The yield curve first inverted in October of twenty uh, th- uh, twenty two. And to be clear, I'm talking about not two tens. I'm talking about three month ten year. That spread is the gold standard for uh, in- inversion, and that inverted in October of twenty two. Classic theory tells us it's twelve to eighteen months. We're on month fifteen now. The chances of us getting a recession next two to three months is pretty low. I mean, it's always, right. recession risk is always there, but you know, it's not, it's not happening. Why is that? There are many answers. I don't know them all, but I think, I think what's happening flies in the face of what we were told is supposed to happen. Um, so the yield curve is, I don't think is predictive. I think it's coincident. It just tells us what's happening today. I think uh, some of it, too, kind of going back to a point I made earlier about um, the way the central banks interact in the markets changed in 2008 with the launch of QE, and it seems it's only escalated since then. Um, And now, instead of the Fed being sort of this reactionary machine, now they're sort of preemptively moving. So if you look at like 2008, it took took seven months from Bear Stearns collapse till the bank got or the Fed got about 115 billion into the market. In 2023, we saw it in six days. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. And and so that just shows shows you the size and the speed of these moves. Uh, in 2020, uh, I think they set up like 13 SPV, you know, uh, funding facilities um, in a matter of months, including buying equities, you know, basically in the market. We've never seen that before. And so you sort of look at that. And so then going back to this yield curve, typically um, showing that rates will be lower in the future means that well, there must be some big recession coming that would cause them to lower rates. I don't know, this is kind of my thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what we're seeing now is, well, they are cutting rates and there is no big recession. And so in the past, they've sort of started cutting rates and then people would say, well, it's when it uninverts, then it causes the crash or when they, when they pivot, it causes the crash. But I think to your point, that's not the cause. It was what was, it was in common. And so the Fed was late to reacting. The markets were already crashing when they made the pivot. Uh, but in this case, they're making the pivot early. Well, uh, that, 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 that you're, I think you're right. And I think they, 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 they're, they're preemptive. In other words, typically what would have happened in 23 with those banks going down, they would have shut the banks down, um, you know, the, the problem banks in 23. And, and, but the, the, the fallout, the, mon- the, the transmission 
would have kept on going and, and, and he, the negative transmission. And what we saw in 23 was that negative feedback loop was short-circuited by, by, by policy. Um, whatever they did, they stopped the, you know, they, they stopped the contagion from spreading. They front run that and got ahead of it. And so credit continued to flow. The economy was never starved of credit. People still had access to credit. Corporations still had access to corporate to credit. Uh, high yield uh, bond spreads continued to come down. And so, you know, the, the Fed was able to front run that and the, the yield curve inversion had nothing to do with that. It was just policy being preemptive and avoiding the problems of the past. Yeah. Now, I love how, um, I, you know, we talked earlier, sort of your 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 take on the markets, the way you look at them, watch them, read them, et cetera, is a little bit different. It seems to be a lot more data driven. And as we kind of said earlier, it's not as you think it should be or philosophically want it to be, but but as it is. So all of this could change at any moment. And you're sort of watching the data, uh, right? And I'm, I'm guessing, or I'm, I guess I'm curious, like what are you watching, you know, your charts and indicators you think are probably the most uh, important to kind of uh, sniff out when you should start to change your mind? Yeah, so uh, in terms of conventional charts, I, I look at the labor market. I'm kind of obsessed with the labor market. So I look at weekly job, the weekly job claims, the continuing claims, the uh, the four week moving average of continuing claims, those are a big tell on 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 the cycle. Once you start, you know, once you start losing the labor market, it's it's kind of like an emergency, or and it's pretty soon game over. So throughout this whole cycle, what we've seen is those numbers improve, even in the face of other shocks. The labor market kept on improving. So you don't get a recession when people are still working. As long as people wake up in the morning, go to work, earn a paycheck, spend it, the economy's gonna keep on going. And so that is really, really important to me, the labor market. But, the but isn't, isn't that somewhat of a lagging indicator, unemployment? I mean, typically businesses are gonna go through a whole lot of hardship before they start to lay off employees. The answer is yes and no. It, it's lagging in the sense of it's the last thing to go. But if if, if you, as long as it, as long as it you know, is resilient, you, you're not going to knock the economy over. So I guess if you want to say, oh my God, the, you know, it's labor market softening up, we're going to have a recession tomorrow. I guess in that way, it could be, it could be leading, right? It gives it, it, it gives you a tell on what's going to be happening in the market. Um, so maybe it's the last thing to go, but since it's the last thing to go, that's when you really have to start worrying. I know it's, I know it's kind of um, counterintuitive in that way. Um, it's kind of like... Um, I don't know. I'm trying to draw an analogy. I don't know. I'm getting I'm getting old. So once 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 I start, I start once I start losing my hair, then shit. I, I really really worry about getting old. Till then, right. I'm looking great, right? So it's 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 kind of a it's a counterintuitive approach that I take at least. Yeah. What about uh, the Fed's numbers? The probably not CPI, maybe PCE. I mean, what about those? Were those into type of indicators? Yeah. So I look at I really look at the the SEP, the statement uh, summary of economic projections. Now a lot of people think that the SEP are forecasts, and they, they say, oh, you know, if inflation did this, and the, the Fed they can't forecast for beans, and they, they don't know what's going on. I think that's the wrong framework, the wrong approach. Um, Fed projections in the SEP are statements of intent. What does that mean? It means that they they are trying to use their policy powers, the levers of policy. To guide the economy to to you know whatever target they have, right? It's a, it's an intent. In other words, like when you wake up in the morning and say, "God, I'm I'm going on a diet," 
Um, and my, my goal is to lose 50 pounds by year end. So, you know, it's in, in a way it's kind of a forecast, but really it's an intent that's going to guide your actions. And hopefully you get there, maybe you miss, but it, it's really a framework for guiding other parts of the policy apparatus, whether it's the RRP, the, the, you know, the, the, you know all, all these different, um, you know, plumbing um, acronyms. Um, those things are driven by the, S, by, by the SEP, by the statements of intent, right? So the statement of intent creates the framework for how different policy levers are going to be pulled and manipulated to guide the economy to their target. It's not a forecast. No, no one's got a crystal ball. Yeah. So I start with the, with the SEP and try to understand, okay, if this is the target, then they're going to try to do X, Y, and Z to get us to that target. And that has an impact on rates. And it has an impact on risk assets. So, you know, a, a good example was we undershot PCE. So having undershot PCE, now they're going to have to take actions to kind of recalibrate their policies. And that's what I, that's what I use to kind of front run where they're going to go. So the SEP for me is a tool of getting into the, into their thinking, not to not to make a forecast, but to get into how they're going to re- react to to the data. Okay. Now I uh, you put on Twitter um, a few weeks ago or maybe a week ago I forget, but something about um, I remain risk on. I think you said that right. Yep. <laughs> uh, is, that's your viewpoint uh, for this year. You remain risk on um, until proven otherwise. Until some of these indicators you mentioned, uh, the unemployment data or the SCP data starts to change your mind. But until then, it's risk on. Yeah, I mean, look, there's volatility, there's risk, you know, we, you know, just we get, if we get a 5% pullback, that doesn't really change the broad thesis, it just means, you know, the market got a little ahead of itself. Um, you know, there, there's always variance in markets. Um, but I'm constructive the economy, a, a recession is not my base case. Um, I, I don't think we're gonna go into a recession, I don't think we're gonna get an employment extinction event. Um, you know, obviously, there's, there's always those risks that we discussed earlier, right, supply chain risk. Uh, war, uh, these things can are, can always, you know, we, we just don't know. But apps, all else being equal, uh, you know, inflation should continue to, to moderate or disinflate. Uh, the labor market should re- remain strong, and we should not go into recession. And you know, risk it's a favorable favorable environment for risk assets. So, um, so how do you play it? What what sectors do you like the best? I mean, I I think uh, I, I'm an inflation bull. I think the rest of this decade is an inflationary story, um, and maybe this story isn't so much how do we um, keep up with inflation, but how do we beat it in this type of environment? Uh, what type of sectors and assets are are you liking for this type of environment? Yeah, so I link it to my to my policy call on what's happening with the yield curve. So what's what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What we know is going to happen is the the yield curve is going to disinvert. We we know that's going to happen. Why do we know it's going to happen? Do you think it happens this year? I, I start. It's that I th- I think I don't know if it fully happens this year, but I, that's I, I think more likely yes. Okay. So the the yield curve is going to disin, disinvert. Now, what is that? That can take different forms. Uh, could mean that you know, could mean that two year stays where it is, ten year goes higher. It could mean it could mean um, you know ten year stays where it is, two year fall yields fall. Could be some combination thereof, but it will disinvert. So I think the trade is to play off that disinversion. Who who benefits from a disinversion? Well, the easiest one is if you're borrowing short, lending long. Right now you're kind of screwed, right? In other words, if your if your financing costs today are higher. 
than what you're making on the long end, you're kind of screwed. You're, you're, not, you're upside down. However, if the yield curve disinverts, and depending on the speed, if you're in, if you're in any business that borrows short and lends long, you're going to start making more money. So a classic one is, and I, I discuss, we put this trade on back in November, um, and I discussed it on a different podcast, was you know the mortgage REITs, you know the, things like Annaly Mortgage. They basically borrow money from banks, buy mortgages, so they're 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 um, borrowing short, lending long, um, and they've been in the toilet for a while. So lately, they're up around I think close to twenty percent since November. Why? Because their funding costs are going their overnight funding costs are, are going down, and you know they're they're buying you know long dated paper that's going to be yielding uh, more than what their borrowing costs are. Hmm. So banks, financial institutions that, that sort of have these types of strategies you think will outperform, you like that? Uh, correct. And also home builders, right? And, and they're, they're capital intensive, so they, they need to borrow. Um, I mean, they're borrowing, they're, they're, the way they turn off their debt's a little different, but I think between the secular um, uh, wind of the, sec- the, the, the housing shortage combined with the change in, in, in the yield curve, um, they should do really well. So companies that are cash intensive uh, could do good because their borrowing costs would go down, which would drive their expenses down. Re- borrowing costs relative to what they're making on the other on the other side, yes. Right. Okay. Doesn't really matter the level. What matters is the, re- the relative relationship between those two. Okay. Um, so home builders, some financial institutions that have that in play. Um, what do you think about commodities? Do you follow commodities much? You know, I don't. I just and, and I, I I don't only out of ignorance. They are, they are so above my above my pay grade. I, I do not understand them. I mean, they're, they're, I know it's supply and demand. I contango and backwardation. I, I get these concepts yeah. academically, um, yeah. but just as 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 a, as a as a way to approach them to make money, I, I would most likely lose money to make it. So I don't touch them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, certainly the commodity itself has those uh, attributes, supply, demand, if you will, which is there's a million reasons that would drive that. Uh, I was thinking about the, the the companies themselves, the gold mining companies, the oil companies, they're very capital intensive, right? So they may be caught up in that sort of borrow long, lend short sort of um, scenario. But yeah, okay, I, I just don't understand. I don't understand. I don't get it. <laughs> Unfortunately, I wish they did. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So financial institutions, what about um, what about uh, like the tech stocks and like AI? You mentioned AI earlier. Um, do you do, do, do you think uh, in, in that area? That's a, that's certainly a risk on type of asset. Absolutely. I, I think I think tech is, you know, tech is, I believe it's now 40% of the S&P 500. I mean, it's right. tech overall. Um, and I think that that's going to keep growing. Um, and that I think the, those huge leverage returns, those scalable returns that you can, you can get from technology is one of the reasons why U.S. markets, especially at the S&P level, uh, trade at a premium relative to other world markets. We just have best in world, best in class, world, you know, world class companies. Um, and that will I think that's going to that's going to continue to do well. Yeah. And uh, w- what's your take with uh, Bitcoin? The ETF popped, a uh, lot of trading volume happening over there. Uh, Larry Fink seems to have really sort of turned the corner, at least vocally, what he's talking about on Bitcoin. Uh, what's your viewpoint on that? I, I have um, no no view on, on Bitcoin. I don't trade it. I, don't, I mean, I, I understand when it's like commodities. I understand it intuitively, maybe even academically, but um, it's I, I really devote my time to understanding the economy and interest rates and from there building out trades based off the interest rate movements. Um, and that, that takes up a lot of my, most of my time. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Warren Buffett strategy, right? Your deal box, uh, stay in your area of your circle of competence, yeah. if you will. Sure. Exactly. 
Yeah. All right, David. Well, uh, man, that was uh, really good. A lot of information there. Uh, I, I really, really appreciate that. Anything else that we need to lay out there that we haven't discussed? No, I think we covered it all. Um, you know, I think we're looking at a, at a March cut in, in uh, uh, by the Fed, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how that, how that evolves. But I think the cuts start in March. Whether it happens in March or April, does it really matter? You know, I, I think it, what matters more is less the timing at this point, more the degree. You know, I think right. if they just, I think the more they they forestall or kick the can on actually making the cut, the bigger the impetus grows for a large cut. In other words, instead of starting at twenty five. If you start kicking the can until June, now they're looking. Now you have to start cutting at fifty, right? Because of the disinflationary pressure is building up. So, you know, tomato. It's you know, you know, tomato, tomato. Right. That's kind of what I was thinking. That was sort of like last year. Like, oh, we're we gonna get one more twenty-five basis point raise, and it's like, does it really matter at this point? <laughs> uh, right. Right. And uh, sort of kind of like that. Okay. Great. Well, uh, David Cervantes, Pinebrook Capital. We'll link to your stuff down in the show notes down below. Um, anyway, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Take care. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.